It's season two of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. This is the first of three episodes based on our interview with Columbus, Georgia-born artist Bo Bartlett. Bo Bartlett is an American realist painter working in Columbus, Georgia and Wheaton Island, Maine. Born James William Bartlett III in 1955, he grew up in Columbus, then at the age of 18 traveled to Florence, Italy, where he studied mural painting under the American expatriate Ben Long. He moved to Philadelphia in 1975, and to Seattle, Washington in 2005. His paintings are inspired by American realism as defined by artists such as Thomas Aikens, Edward Hopper, Grant Wood, Norman Rockwell, and Andrew Wyeth. Bartlett's experience in filmmaking led him to connect with Betsy Wyeth in 1992 to embark upon a film about the life and work of her husband, Andrew Wyeth. The film collaboration marked the beginning of Bartlett's lifelong friendship with Wyeth, and his documentary about this American master, Snow Hill, was completed in 1995. Bartlett went on to co-direct C, an art road trip, with his wife, the American abstract and caustic painter Betsy Eby. He also directed Helga, a documentary short about Andrew Wyeth's muse and model, and Things Don't Stay Fixed a narrative feature-length film that draws inspiration from the Southern Gothic literary works of Tennessee Williams and Carson McCullers. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Hey, Bo, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Nick? All right, you're, you've got a show coming up. Is that right? I do. The show is in New York, Miles McHenry Gallery in New York. I'm just finishing up the last painting now. You see it behind me. I am just working on it now, and I'm trying to get it finished all right well I, that's what i wanted to ask very cool man uh very cool hey uh, through, wh- wh- through. when is that uh, when is the opening for the show it is may 13th okay so just a couple At of weeks Miles away McKinley. yes yeah we have yeah. to get this painting done and up there your film things don't stay fixed is also now available i believe is that correct it is available on all platforms except netflix you can find it anywhere things don't stay fixed well um by your own reckoning i think uh the film is influenced by tennessee williams and carson mccullers and i want to ask you about that in a minute but first i would like to back up you were born in columbus and grew up in a house that is literally just blocks away from the house where Carson McCullers grew up. Of course, she no longer lived there then, and she died in Nyack, New York in 1967 when you would have been 11 years old, I think. Your birthday's in December. Hers is, she died in September, so you were 11, I think, when she died. But uh, I'm wondering, when you first became aware of Carson McCullers and how and what the circumstances were, do you remember? I do, actually. Well, it's, it's interesting, actually, because growing up in my house, you know, it's in Wiracoba in the Park District, there was a, um, up in the garage, there was a little place that we used to support, my brother and I, and it was, a, you know, up in the eaves of the, of the garage, and there were these uh, big beams that went across, and there was a lot of write, chalk writing, which had been written back when the house was first built back in the 30s. There was one beam that was written in relatively decent handwriting uh, across the beam it said read loves lulu true and 
I always remembered that line, read loves Lulu true, because it just sort of, it just, it's poetic. It just flows right out. And I, I didn't know who any of these characters were and these people were, and we still don't for, sh for sure. But um, when Carson was young, she roamed all around the neighborhood and wrote in white chalk on just about everything she could write on. So my theory is that she played in, in my garage, upstairs in, in my garage when she was younger. I always held on to that. Actually, when we when we re-roofed that, when we rebuilt that garage and turned it into a studio, I actually had the construction workers uh, hold out that piece of timber. But somewhere along the way, they threw it in the dumpster and, it, and we, we've lost it. Oh. But, um, yeah, I know, right? So um, yeah, it broke my heart because I just always wanted it as a memory of my childhood primarily. But once I realized that maybe it was something more, um, I really wanted to hold on to it. But um, when I was in high school at Brookstone, I would have been about 14, probably. Uh, it would have been just a couple of years after Carson's death. When um, Spencer, was that her name? Virginia Spencer Carr. That's it. She uh, came to Brookstone and was trying to enlighten us all. The poor Southern kids that knew nothing about Carson McCullough. She, she came to enlighten us all about her. It was a baptism by fire because, you know, suddenly we, we were learning all about her from not knowing anything about her other than that someone had written in my garage. That is so cool because, you know, um, in the book, The Heart is the Lonely Hunter, one of the early scenes is Mick taking her uh, younger siblings for a walk and she leaves them on the sidewalk in a little red wagon and she climbs on top of a house that is under construction and sits on the roof and smokes a cigarette. You know, when I'm in your neighborhood, I always, you know, think of that. And I think of that moment as happening in that neighborhood because, you know, when she moved there uh, in the 20s, a lot of the houses were still under construction. Maybe the house that, that you grew up in uh, was exactly. one of them. That is so right. cool. Yeah. yeah, and our house was the last of the neighborhood. It was actually on a dead end street. So uh, our house was as far away as you could get from Carson's house before you got into the woods. Our house was the last house before the woods. So because our street 15th didn't cut through back then, it just sort of ended at our driveway. From my house on, all the way down to 13th and 13th, almost to almost to downtown, well, at least to where the viaduct was, was uh, that, that was all woods back then growing up. Yeah, I wanted so. to ask you uh, more about that, actually. I mean, could, could you describe for our listeners what it was like? I've heard you talk about it before. To grow up in that neighborhood, you know, back then, because it's all fully developed now. Yeah, it was incredible because it was so exotic. We lived on, uh, it was a dirt road. 15th coming down the hill was a dirt road. It wasn't paved initially when I was young. And I, I moved there in 58, I think. As I said, forest, uh, just in front of the house and uh, on both sides of the house, as far as, as far as you could see. And it went down. There was a trail that cut down. It sort of stopped it at the road, and, and the trail wound through. The, I always thought of it as like an Indian trail, wound through the woods. Giant old trees, you know, larger than you could wrap your arms around, uh, that had been there forever from the beginning of time. And moss, green moss, covering the the sides of the of the rolling hills. You, you'd go back there and just lie down on this beautiful green moss. You know, we just went everywhere barefoot back then. Every now and then, someone would come walking out of the the trail. It might be. Uh, a black woman with uh, fruits and vegetables on, on a basket on top of her head. It was like coming out of a foreign time or foreign country. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, she would have been coming up from the, the market, you know, down by Victory Drive, the, the farmer's market probably, and, and taking them somewhere or selling them, you know, and I think they sold them too, as I recall. And every now and then some, some guy would come through, some young mill guy. And I remember my mother saying, oh, don't talk to them. They're from Boogerville. 
you know, as if mm-hmm. Boogerville was someplace very far away and very uh, scary, which was the neighborhood just beyond the forest, just beyond the trees. It was Milltown. That's what they called Boogerville. And that, you know, that was the actual official name of it. I'd read somewhere recently that, that they thought that it was a um, adaptation from Bougainvillea, which grew all, all in around the area. But we had, at, at some point, they started to cut those trees down. They started to take the, the woods down, the forest down. It, it was traumatic for me because that was all my, my yard. And they started to tear it down because the Woodruff Company was going to build a shopping center down there. And they built the A&P eventually. And I guess WRBL was down there. The only thing prior to that had just been um, like that Joy Nursery, which now is a dance studio, but way down in the corner with that wonderful curved glass. But there were once they made turned it into a field, it was a grassy field. This again was my yard and, and we had, you know, there was a spring which had, had was st- part of the woods were still there and the spring gurgled up and there were salamanders and crawdads in there. And, I, and during the day, I would go and um, and just get down on all fours and drink drink there. I mean, if I was thirsty, that's where I drink water. At one point, I mean, at some point, it, they stopped. My pool was right there, and my they, this the creek came across the little dirt road. And some back in the day, they had a um, it was spring fed. That pool was spring fed. It's the oldest continually used pool in Columbus. There was one up in Dingleway, which at some point got filled in, but this is the oldest one. But then they started to, when they took all the trees down, some of that verdant, you know, all that greenery started to sort of get turned over into just high grass and, and weed, high weeds. And um, But we played there. It was our stomping ground. People don't believe this, but I have a memory of iguanas being over there. I know there were, I know there were skinks and gila, gila monsters and all kinds of snakes. But um, I, I swear there was one iguana. Uh, I don't know if that was set loose by someone or. Well, I'm sure they could native. live here. You know, they're taking yeah. over in certain places. I guess it maybe right. it's Florida or somewhere like that. People have released them, so they they could live here. We only saw. I only remember seeing one, and we we just acted like it was the only one there. It would scoot. It would run quickly. I mean, you know, it was long. It would run across the, the dirt path when he was walking through the through the field. Yeah. We used that as our backyard and it was you know acres and acres and uh we you know and we were kids and we would start fires you know it was like there's nothing to do today so you know you start striking matches in the field and just see how mm-hmm. how long before you could uh, it could grow before it's out of control it was just a, a sort of a, a regular game then it would get out of control and you would be, try to beat it out with your shirt or jumping on it and it would just start taking off the wind would catch it and it would start burning toward the houses or the a and p and would have to run up to our house and called the fire department and we'd watch through the window as they pulled up on the grass and drove through the field and, and put it out with hoses. And- you know, it's what is so um, cool for us here in the Carson McCullers world is like you grew up in the neighborhood where she grew up in and you grew up right as that world kind of was ending you know it's like it was mm-hmm. like you were 30 years after she grew up there but what you're describing is the last remnants of you know the neighborhood she would have known before it became what it is now. And I mean, it's a lovely neighborhood now. You actually live in the house that we're describing that you grew up in. And it's a lovely neighborhood. Um, And at your house is, I'm going to guess, a half mile from the house that Carson grew up in. About that. It's on the other side of the park from it. And, you know, it's now Midtown Columbus. It was the suburbs when, uh, you know, certainly when Carson was growing up there. And I guess when you were growing up there, because that was before they built the viaduct over the railroad yard, I guess, when you were growing up, right? Yeah, the viaduct was there. As I remember, it was there. Yeah, it was always there. Oh, okay. It was um, already there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the viaduct was there, but it was still 
it was a very sleepy, you know, it was the suburbs and, and cross country plaza was being built. It was a brand new thing. I don't know exactly what year that was built, but that was the first sort of shopping center further mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the very beginning of what became, you know, all across America, all the little sort of strip malls and shopping centers. We didn't have yeah. a mall back then. There was a mall that built later, but, uh, you know, all of that, like where Carson lived was, you know, slightly further away from downtown. That would have been sort of a, but all the houses were built around the same time. When you were growing up then, it, when, when, when you, when you go shopping, like people would go clothes shopping or th- stuff like that, I guess you would still go to downtown Columbus, right? On, on Broadway and all of those streets. Right. I went downtown until I was in either late junior high school or high school when Columbus Square was built. And we would go out to Columbus Square to the the huddle shop, if I remember correctly, Mark Stein's father's place. But before that, the, the Steins had a place down on Broadway too. Well, there was Harry's Haberdashery. Do you remember that one? Hey, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't been around that long. I've only lived, lived here 20 years, Bo. So. <laughs> yeah, Harry's Haberdashery was a, was a good place to go. Chancellor's was good too. That was sort of upscale. But that the, is still those, there. Chancellor's is the still men, there. Yep. Yeah, the men's shops were all there. Everything was, was down there. Uh, and all the, the, the women, Ralphie's and Curvin's and Davidson's, all those shops were there down. I mean, they weren't shops, they were sort of department stores and everybody uh, shopped downtown. And, you know, it was, it's hard to believe, but, you know, Christmas was like uh, Christmas on and the shops in big cities where the, the, the big plate glass windows were all decorated with, uh, you know, moving, you know, snowmen and, you know, yeah. Santas and children and uh, automated with snow everywhere. I mean, it was, it was a real... Um, go down there to those big department stores to see Santa. And, you know, it, it was a, a, a packed and busy downtown because, you know, there were no other, there was nowhere else to, to shop because there were, people weren't going to NOCO or out mm-hmm. in the, the burbs to do anything. Everybody was right downtown. So it was a very busy and active town. And I like to think about that when I, when I read McCullers and how, how it was. It's funny because Kathy Fussell was telling me about a woman she met who uh, was born in Germany and married a soldier and moved to Columbus. And um, she had this sense of deja vu when she walked on Broadway. And then it was, she realized it was because she had read Carson McCullers. She was like, Oh, this is it. This is it. Exactly what she describes, you know, in those, yeah. In those books and stuff. The sun won't make early although she had stayed up mighty late the night before. It was too hot even to drink coffee for breakfast, so she had ice water with syrup in it and cold biscuits. She messed around the kitchen for a while and then went out on the front porch to read the funnies. She had thought maybe Mr. Singer would be reading the paper on the porch like he did most Sunday mornings, but Mr. Singer was not there. And later on, her dad said he came in very late the night before and had company in his room. She waited for Mr. Singer a long time. All the other boulders came down except him. Finally, she went back in the kitchen and took Ralph out of his high chair and put a clean dress on him and wiped off his face. Then when Bubba got home from Sunday school, she was ready to take the kids out. She let Bubba ride in the wagon with Ralph because he was barefooted and the hot sidewalk burned his feet. She pulled the wagon for about eight blocks until they came to the big new house that was being built. The ladder was still propped against the edge of the roof and she screwed up nerve and began to climb. You mind, Ralph, she called back to Bubba. Mind the gnats don't sit on his eyelids. 
Five minutes later, Mick stood up and held herself very straight. She spread out her arms like wings. This was the place where everybody wanted to stand, the very top, but not many kids could do it. Most of them were scared, for if you lost grip and rolled off the edge, it would kill you. All around were the roofs of the other houses and the green tops of trees. On the other side of town were the church steeples and the smokestacks from the mills. The sky was bright blue and hot as fire. The sun made everything on the ground either dizzy white or black. She wanted to sing. All the songs she knew pushed up toward her throat, but there was no sound. One big boy who had got to the highest part of the roof last week let out a yell and then started hollering out a speech he had learned at high school. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. There was something about getting to the very top that gave you a wild feeling and made you want to yell or sing or raise up your arms and fly. She felt the soles of her tennis shoes slipping and eased herself down so that she straddled the peak of the roof. The house was almost finished. It would be one of the largest buildings in the neighborhood, two stories with very high ceilings and the steepest roof of any house that she had ever seen. But soon the work would all be finished. The carpenters would leave and the kids would have to find another place to play. She was by herself. No one was around and it was quiet and she could think for a while. She took from the pocket of her shorts the package of cigarettes she had bought the night before. She breathed in the smoke slowly. The cigarette gave her a drunk feeling so that her head seemed heavy and loose on her shoulders, but she had to finish it. M.K. That was what she would have written on everything when she was 17 years old and very famous. She would ride back home in a red and white Packard automobile with her initials on the door. She would have M.K. written in red on her handkerchiefs and underclothes. Maybe she would be a great inventor. She would invent tiny little radios the size of a green pea that people could carry around and stick in their ears. Also flying machines. People could fasten on their backs like knapsacks and go zipping all over the world. After that, she would be the first one to make a large tunnel through the world to China and people could go down in big balloons. Those were the first things she would invent. They were already planned. When Mick had finished half of the cigarette, she smashed it dead and flipped the butt down the slant of the roof. Then she leaned forward so that her head rested on her arms and she began to hum to herself. It was a funny thing, but nearly all the time there was some kind of piano piece or other music going on in the back of her mind. No matter what she was doing or thinking, it was nearly always there. Ms. Brown, who boarded with them, had a radio in her room, and all last winter she would sit on the steps every Sunday afternoon and listen in on the programs. Those were probably classical pieces, but they were the ones she remembered best. There was one special fellow's music that made her heart shrink up every time she heard it. Sometimes this fellow's music was like little colored pieces of crystal candy and other times it was the softest, saddest thing she had ever imagined about. 
There was a sudden sound of crying. Mick sat up straight and listened. The wind ruffled the fringe of hair on her forehead and the bright sun made her face white and damp. The whimpering continued and Mick moved slowly along the sharp pointed roof on her hands and knees. When she reached the end, she leaned forward and lay on her stomach so that her head jutted over the edge and she could see the ground below. The kids were where she had left them. Bubba was squatting over something on the ground and beside him was a little black dwarf shadow. Ralph was still tied in the wagon. He was just old enough to sit up and he held onto the sides of the wagon with his cap crooked on his head, crying. Bubba! Mick called down. Find out what that Ralph wants and give it to him. Bubba stood up and looked hard into the baby's face. Well, he don't want nothing. We'll give him a good shake then. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at mccullerscenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullough's 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. Susie Parker DeVoe reads the opening of Part 1, Chapter 3 of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. The music you heard during the reading was the first movement of Claude Debussy's Sonata for Flute, Viola, and Harp, Pastoral. This performance was given live in Legacy Hall on March 6, 2020.